Hello, ACAC Church family. In these days when we aren't able to convene together physically in the manner to which we have grown accustomed, I'm delighted that we can still connect by way of technology. I'm delighted that I can still share God's profound, eternal, life-transforming word with you. I want to be honest, I miss you. I miss weekends filled with hugs and handshakes and prayer and greetings. I miss the physical presence of the body of Christ. But as I reminded you in my weekly video, the distance between us because of this virus doesn't separate us or divide us in the spirit. We are still the body of Christ. And wherever you're at today as you listen to this, I pray that God will reach out and touch your heart and that when this is over, we'll have a multitude of testimonies of what God was doing in these dark days. Well, history tells us that new developments often birth new words, new terminology, and sometimes they significantly alter the meaning and the use and the emotional impact of old words. Six months ago, the word distancing was rarely heard. It was generally used to reference an intentional effort to create relational or emotional or even physical space between ourselves and something or someone that we deemed negative. We would say things like, I need to distance myself from her constant criticisms, or I need to distance myself from my painful, disappointing past. But today, in light of the coronavirus pandemic, the word distance, in all of its forms, is heard continually. It's taken on new meaning. It's taken on new importance. And it is certainly taken on new emotional impact. Now, that's new for most of us. But it hasn't always been a new thing for the human family. Not now and not in the past. Today, we're going to consider an example of that from Jesus' day. Our text is Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out, in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. I've entitled this weekend's study, People at a Distance. As always, before we embark upon the journey, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, even though the venue is somewhat different, the assignment and the end result remain the same. We are here to hear from you. 
and I am here to faithfully preach and teach your word. Toward that end, I pray that your spirit would empower me for declaration and empower all of us for understanding and for application. And I pray that in this new and different format, your spirit would still reach out to us and bring your word alive in our souls. As always, we pray these things for the honor of Christ, and we pray them with confidence because we pray them in his name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. If you're willing to have your heart broken, if you're willing to have some of your assumptions challenged, I want to recommend that you get a hold of this book. It's entitled Amazing Grace, and it was written by Jonathan Kozel, K-O-Z-O-L. You can get it now used for a couple dollars on Amazon. Though it was released in 1995, Amazing Grace tragically remains relevant. Its recorded stories and recorded interviews captured both the tragic plight and the amazing resiliency, the amazing grace of children in the South Bronx, at the time the poorest congressional district in the United States. One 15-year-old girl who was interviewed was named Isabel. She offered this appraisal of her circumstances. Quote, living here is like being hidden. It's as if you've been put in a garage where if they don't have room for something but aren't sure they should throw it out, they put it where they don't need to think of it again. End quote. Isabel felt invisible to the larger society, distance from the rest of the culture, and safe to assume the men in our text shared those same emotions. Most who consider this story focus on two things, Jesus' ability to heal and the fact that all but one of the men failed to come back and express gratitude. But I think those two lessons are low-hanging fruit. They're the obvious lessons in the story. I want to unpack four things that I think are generally overlooked, four phrases. And I want to unpack those phrases, not from the angle of what they meant in the original Greek language, but from the angle of what they meant to those men and what they can mean to you and to me. The first simple phrase, men who had leprosy, not lepers. And the difference is important. It's not merely semantic. It reminds us that God doesn't label people and God doesn't define people by their disease, their difficulty, or even their disobedience. They weren't lepers. They were men who had leprosy. And God doesn't define people by their disease, their difficulty, or even their disobedience because those things don't diminish their 
humanity. And what God doesn't do, you and I should not do. I'm afraid in our increasingly polarized, fractured culture, if we allow ourselves to fall in line with so many others, if we allow ourselves to label people in terms of their current challenges, or even in terms of their sin, three things can happen, and all three are bad. First, we lose sight of their humanity, and we begin to devalue them. We forget that despite their current condition, the attic or the single mom selling her body in the trailer park or the corrupted politician was fashioned in God's image. And even though that image is marred and scarred and compromised, it still remains with the potential for redemption and restoration. That leads me to the second bad thing that can happen. We lose sight of what people could be if God's power were to be unleashed in their life. They cease to be seen as our potential brothers and sisters in Christ, or sometimes even as our existing brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, they become the enemy. Statistics in an argument. Fools in need of our wisdom. Targets of our resentment. Or clients that justify our existence and our funding. Third, if we label people on the basis of their sin, we risk becoming Pharisees. People who see sin as something that resides in others rather than something that resides in us. We assume we're doing better than we really are. And that leads to pride, and God resists the proud. Now, those points, taken from the way Jesus described those ten men, help us to guard against the pandemic of polarization. The second phrase, they stood at a distance. It was a profoundly accurate description in Jesus' day. Because from the moment their condition was first diagnosed by the priest, from the moment they first heard that word that nobody ever wanted to hear, people with leprosy became people at a distance. They were distanced from everything they cherished, distanced from their families, distanced from their homes, from their vocations, from their adequate income, and even from public worship. Consigned to leper colonies, they became the ultimate outsiders, hidden away and forgotten. And since the internet in Jesus' day had convinced everybody that leprosy was spread by contact, they were distanced from human touch. And under those conditions, and absent any known cure, 
It was very easy for men with leprosy to feel distance from both God and hope. The third phrase, when Jesus saw them. Now, imagine what that meant to those men because they were used to being unseen. People avoided them. And when people had to be in their vicinity, people generally looked away. Eye contact could be interpreted as horrible insensitivity or a morbid fascination with another person's unspeakable suffering. But I suspect most looked away because they didn't want to be forced to grapple with the reality, the uncomfortable reality of other people's suffering. But Jesus saw them, and he didn't stop there. The fourth phrase, Jesus said. He said to them. Now, people usually had very little to say to victims of leprosy. After all, what do you say to somebody suffering from a physically deforming, socially, economically devastating and life-altering disease? What do you say to them? How things going? How's life treating you? How about them stillers? What do you say to somebody suffering the ravages of leprosy. You see, men with leprosy were used to deafening silence. The fact that Jesus stopped, looked, and engaged them with words was an unexpected boost to their humanity, their dignity, and their hopes. And Jesus didn't mouth empty cliches. He didn't say, I know you've been dealt a bum deal and a bad hand, but there are other people worse off than you. At least you're still alive. Not much reassurance there. No, Jesus offered them healing, restoration, liberty. Two things, three things that they only dreamt about, and they didn't allow themselves to dream very long because it was too painful. All that would be required of them was a step of faith. Now, did that step of faith feel risky? You can bet it did. What if they stepped out in faith of Jesus' promise and things didn't work out as he promised? Well, then they'd be worse off than before. They'd be doubly devastated, but it was worth the risk. So they stepped out in faith. They presented themselves to the priest where just as Jesus promised, they were pronounced clean. They were miraculously healed. Now, we know only one of the ten returned to thank Jesus, but be very careful about getting on your spiritual high horse and judging the other nine. If you had been distanced from your family for years and were suddenly reunited with your family, 
if you suddenly had the opportunity to hug your wife, to hug your children, to hug your friends and neighbors, to catch up on everything that had been going on in your absence, if you suddenly had the ability to touch and be touched with joy and relief after living years in despair and hopelessness, I've got a hunch you would get so caught up in what was going on that the minutes would become hours and the hours would become days. Besides, remember this happened while Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. I suspect he didn't hang around waiting for gratitude, and he really didn't need it. If I were to ask this question, how is it that Jesus saw those 10 men? How is it that Jesus spoke to them? I suspect many would attribute it to his compassion. But I'd like to suggest a more fundamental explanation not his compassion, but his incarnation. Now, what do I mean by that? Jesus saw them. Jesus spoke to them precisely because Jesus was there. He was in a place to see them. He was in a place to speak to them. If the Christ of eternity hadn't stepped into time and space, if the Word hadn't become flesh and taken up residence in our hood, those men would have remained people at a distance. Now, I want to consider the implications of this story, first, for all of humanity, and second, for God's church. But first, I want to point out one other thing that I suspect most people overlook in this story. The leprosy that those men suffered rendered their skin numb. It rendered their nerves unable to detect pain and injury and decay until it was too late. And so here's the rather ironic truth. Jesus healed the lepers by restoring their capacity to feel pain. To feel pain. As creator of their bodies, Jesus understood that absent that capacity, they were doomed. Doomed to otherwise avoidable injuries, to gradual decay, to infection, and ultimately guaranteed death. So Jesus graciously enabled them to feel pain again. Now, the implications of that, I believe, are profound. Scripture tells us something that Jesus affirmed repeatedly. It tells us that we all begin our life at a distance from God. Now, things weren't intended to be that way. They became that way when our shared mutual ancestors sinned and we followed suit. And all of us have followed suit. And sin creates a necessary distance between us and a holy and sinless God. So we all begin life at a distance from God. 
But fortunately, just as Jesus saw the men in our story, our loving Creator saw our plight, our condition, and He did something about it. He sent Jesus to cover the unavoidable consequences of our sin, and in so doing, to open the way to our spiritual healing and restoration. And then, just as he did with those ten men with leprosy, Jesus spoke. And he didn't speak empty platitudes. He spoke words of healing and words of liberation. He invited us to take a step of faith, promising that if we would do so, we would be healed, restored to the fullness of our humanity, restored to a relationship with our Creator, a relationship that would define life, that would bring dignity to life, that would bring purpose and meaning and significance to our lives. And he made it clear there wasn't any other antidote. He was it. Jesus is the only antidote for the deadliest epidemic in human history. But the healing that Jesus offers of necessity includes the ability to feel pain. It's a pain of spiritual recognition. The recognition that apart from God's miraculous intervention, we are all dying a slow spiritual death wasting away, and we're numb to God's presence because our spiritual central nervous system has been compromised and effectively shut down. Scripture refers to that necessary pain as, quote, the godly sorrow that leads to repentance, end quote a feeling of regret that leads us to see our need of repentance, our need to turn around and pursue a radically different path. The sorrow that leads us to admit that despite our favorite shared illusion, the illusion that we are intrinsically good and self-sufficient, We're actually addicted to pride, enslaved by evil, and totally incapable of healing ourselves. We need outside intervention. That's what this parable story tells all of humanity. It was a factual account, but it is something of a parable of salvation. To those who are already Jesus' followers, to his body, the church, I want to say this story reminds us that before we can tell people of Jesus' power, we must be willing to feel pain. The Apostle Paul made that clear in his words to a believing community in the ancient city of Philippi. He made it clear that those who want to be the voice of Jesus, to distanced people, must be intimate with God. We must be near to God if we're going to effectively call people at a distance to draw near 
to him. And being near to God involves a willingness to embrace the fellowship of Jesus' suffering rather than distancing ourselves from it. What do I mean? We are all very proficient in our ability to become spiritual lepers. Fearing pain, we easily gravitate toward conduct that is self-absorbed, self-centered, and self-protective. We have seen an example of that in the aisles of our supermarkets and big box warehouses. We are prone to insulate ourselves and to isolate ourselves socially, politically, geographically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually until we eventually end up spiritually numb. We ask God why he allows us to suffer when he has made it clear in his word he has called us to sometimes suffer to share the sufferings of Christ, to know pain, not as a destructive force, not as a life-ending force, but as a transforming force. That's a lesson I believe God is shouting to his church in this pandemic. He wants to remind us that if we will decrease the distance between ourselves and our neighbors, we will decrease the distance between ourselves and God, between our hearts and God's heart. And then people who are at a distance from God will find their hope and will find their healing because we'll incarnate God's presence in their life. And while they're finding their hope and they're finding their healing, we'll rediscover our own. The story of Jesus and the men at a distance reminds us that Jesus can address any distance in our lives. If you feel distanced from God, he sees your plight, and he has something to say to you. It's not an empty cliche. It's an invitation to faith action. And if you'll respond in faith, you'll discover the distance between you and those eternal things that your heart longs for will suddenly, quickly be no more. A final word before I pray. If tomorrow we are greeted with the news that an effective antidote to the virus has been found and it is available to everyone, no shortage in the supply, I don't believe anybody would protest by saying, why is there only one antidote? Why can't we have several options? No, we would heartily rush to that antidote. Jesus has given us an antidote to being distanced from our Creator. It's the only antidote possible, but it's the only one we need, and it is available at no cost to everyone 
available immediately. It simply awaits your yes to his invitation. So if you've never said yes to that invitation, this would be a great, great time to do that. And you can do that right where you are by simply speaking to the Lord as he has spoken to you, asking him to forgive your life of independence from him, confessing your need of him, confessing him as Lord and Savior resurrected from the dead and inviting him to be the manager and the Savior of your life. He'll do that for you. He delights in helping people at a distance draw close to God. Now let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful that even though we begin life at a distance from you, we do not have to finish life at a distance from you. And even though in these days we are distanced from one another, we don't have to be distanced from you. We're thankful there is an antidote for the most devastating distancing in the universe and that Jesus is that antidote. Where your people are suffering, where anyone is suffering, Lord, we pray that they would come to the recognition that you see and that you have something to say to them. And Father, for your church, I pray that we would incarnate your eyes and your voice to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to those who are in our sphere of influence, to our family, so that people at a distance can come home and draw near to you. Give us grace to navigate these uncertain times with the certainties of your gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you.